Neither activities nor possessions will ever be able to satisfy the spiritual longing radiating from our souls. We are reading the gospel according to Mark. This is session number nine. We left off in Mark, was it chapter six? Did we leave off around verse 13? Yes. Okay. Any, any comments, any uh, reflections on what we had read last week? I know we had talked a bit about repentance towards the end, and there'll be much more to say about that in the future. Shall I go on? Yeah. All right. Beginning with verse 14, chapter 6. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead. And for this reason, these powers are at work in him. But others said, it is Elijah. Others said, it is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Did we talk a little bit about baptism? Not fully. Okay, that's the noun. And it means immersion. The ordinary meaning of this word just means to dip something, to put something into some kind of liquid or something moving. Uh, that's the basic meaning of this word. So it doesn't necessarily have to be water. And it clearly, in, in many, at, in a variety of times in the New Testament, you know, being baptized into the death, the life and death of Christ, clearly that has nothing to do with water. Go forth and baptize all nations. Go forth, preach to all nations, making students of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's in Matthew, the last chapter. Again, that means immersing them into the basic nature of God as Father, as Son, and Holy Spirit. And baptism, still, this, this rite is still used in modern Judaism today in terms of converts to Judaism. What was unusual about John's baptism was that he was baptizing Jews who are already Jews. And if you recall what that baptism was called, it was a baptism of repentance. And that was something out of the ordinary, essentially, that there was an, a need to go further beyond just what being called a Jew was. And of course, what was also unusual was the fact that Jesus got baptized. Any, any ideas why he did? There's a comment, I think it's in Matthew, where um, Jesus does say something to that effect. Something about it's, fulfilling the, the prophets? or the, the yeah, Fulfilling the, the requirements of the law or something like that. I'm just looking for it right now. It's in chapter 3 of Matthew, verse 13 and through 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. 
John the Baptist consented. So you said that um, Jews um, still are, people still are baptized if they become Jews. And, yes. and were they baptized both when they became Jews back then and also if they were born Jews? Were they, were, were people? No, were not, not born Jews. That's why John baptizing out there was doing something different from what was expected, the fact that he was actually baptizing Jews. And this was a baptism of repentance, uh, an immersion, a, a sort of a symbol for washing away one's sins of Jews. Or to convert them. Well, to convert them where they were already Jews, but they needed a different kind of conversion. Right. Something clear, clearly more than just following all the uh, rules and regulations of the Old Testament, all 613 of them. I was just going to add that there are a lot of Christians, I feel, that misunderstand baptism. They, they think it was a Christian-initiated event, and they don't have any idea that baptism was really uh, an old Jew Jewish rite. But anyway, a lot of Christians think that baptism began with Christianity. Yes, and that's true. And Quakers actually historically have talked about water baptism, that with so many of the other rites of Judaism that were laid aside, this too, as a ceremony, as a, a rite, a ritual, should have also disappeared. That what really mattered was the baptism of Jesus in the Spirit. But this did continue. And I think, uh, I was going to talk about this later, but that's one of those things that, again, with so many of the other rites and rituals of Judaism, they were all laid aside, but this one continued. And again, it was, friends have thought that it too should have disappeared, and the emphasis should have been much more on the true baptism into the death and resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, friends would understand it as a spiritual thing rather than an outward water. Actually, in the Gospel according to John, where Jesus is talking to the woman in Samaria, you know, he mentions what the true worship is, if you recall. Yes, yes I do. The time is coming and now is when all yes. true worshipers of God will worship him in spirit and the truth, for God seeketh such to worship him. Like these ceremonies can become red herrings. They divert one's true attention to what one truly must do in terms of repentance, in terms of transforming one's words and actions and thinking, and pay more attention to the rites, the ceremonies, the rituals, the words, rather than what is really needed is that conversion to God, that turning to God away from these earthly elements these materialistic kinds of symbols. And that's why friends made a very big fuss over this, that what really matters is the true baptism, the spiritual baptism. That's the one that we must focus on. It's so easy to just have water poured on you or to, to get immersed into a, a tub of water or into a, a lake or a river. But it's, it's, a, it's a bit different to um, really have this, this true conversion. Just one other point I'll make while we're talking about Christians with baptism. I would say for Christians, the way they do ritual baptism with water, there's probably more 
difference among Christians, whether you should immerse them or sprinkle them, whether you do adults only or whether you do children. Uh, some say you have to do trine immersion. Uh, some say uh, dip them forward. Some say dip them backwards. I mean, there are all these differences between denominations that actually this misunderstanding of baptism, they make it a whole basis for their peculiar ways. Like I said, it's a red herring. And then they fight over the, how the size of the herring or, or the shade or the hue of the herring. Is it pink? Is it red? Crimson? You know, that, that's the kind of thing that you, you get so far off what is really at the core, the change, the transformation that that should be symbolizing. Early Christians, you know, in becoming a Christian, it wasn't something just that happened quickly. You went through a whole process of learning about what it meant to be a Christian, and you understood, too, that you were in, entering into a, a religious group that was a persecuted group, and that you yourself could easily die for just being called a Christian. Okay, anything else on baptism there? I'm just looking for another word here. I've told you what prophet is, is it in this group, haven't I? The word for the prophet? Yes. Yeah, someone who speaks for someone else. Right. And that the root of this word, the P-H-E, is the root that means speak or say. And the P-R-O is for. So someone who speaks for someone else, that's what a prophet is. In this case, a prophet is someone who speaks for God. He's allowing God to speak through him. And true ministry and worship should be allowing God to speak through a minister who is ministering in a meeting. So, prophetes. Also, the other word here I wanted to just look at. Uh, in some translations in 14, do you have the word miracles? Yes. The word here is not the word for miracle. It's this word dunamis which basically means power. The verb, there's a verb here, dunamai, which means to be able, means can or be able. So here in this part of this gospel, this word is uh, dunamis is translated as power or powers, but in others it's translated as miracles. We're talking about the same thing here, but these are sort of like unusual powers. So did John the Baptist raise the dead? No. They're saying that um, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason, these powers are... Oh, oh, okay. No, we're about to see something here. This is written after he's been beheaded, and the story of his beheading is about to come up in the section we're going to be reading right now. So the thought was that some were thinking that because he had been raised, he could do these things. Well, well, although during life he wasn't doing those things. No, it, I'm sorry, what verse are you referring to here? 14. So I read this. John the baptizer was raised from the dead, and for this power, the reason these powers are at work in him. So my first... Oh, no, was, okay. Some were thinking maybe he was Elijah, one of the ancient prophets. Those were misunderstandings of different yes, people misunderstandings. Ab no, about no. what was going on, and they, Herod didn't know that it was Jesus doing these things. Right, but what, what, I, what I can't figure out is that, okay, people are saying, wow, here's this person who's performing these miracles, 
it must be John the baptizer who's been raised from the dead. So the first thing you'd think is that, well, if someone's doing miracles and they were John the baptizer raised from the dead, then that meant that John the baptizer was doing those miracles before. I know that it's just... Uh, this is all a, a, just a statement of people's misunderstanding of what was happening, that's all. Right, but I'm wondering, I'm wondering why they would attribute these powers to John the Baptist. Well, if you assume that he was raised from the dead, John the Baptist, then perhaps you also might think he's got special powers now that he's been raised from the dead. Again, this is all... False speculation. False right? speculation. Well, and I wonder, too, if Herod felt the, the shame for what he did. And so he had some fear that came back to life, but he had killed him. Also, this word, let me see, in verse 16, uh, was raised. This is one of the two verbs that gets translated into English as to raise or to resurrect. The basic meaning of this particular verb, and it's a verb, is to wake up, you know, wake up in the morning. I'm just mentioning that because that's one of the two verbs. The other verb, which, which we don't have right here, is uh, anhistemi. And that's the word that also means to uh, resurrect, to raise up. It also has the sense of restore, to erect, to, to stand up, something. So these are ordinary Greek words. I mean, we have the word resurrect, and we don't think of it as an ordinary, everyday word in English, but these are ordinary works, words in Greek, these two words. The noun here for, uh, is, that's the noun for, is similar to the verb. And the other noun is, I guess is. So those are the two nouns and two verbs that we translate as resurrect or raise up or rise. But uh, as you see, agero is the kind of rising is getting up from sleep, waking up. And of course, if you look at death as like sleep, you can understand why they would use that. So Herod thought someone could come back from the dead, but he killed Christ anyway. <laughs> he killed John, you mean? No, no, I know. But, but then he killed, later on, he killed Christ. Right? No, no. Well, I mean, he, wasn't he? Not well, Herod. But wasn't he partly responsible? You're, you're thinking of Pilate. Pilate had the complete, Herod would not have had that authority to do that. The, Roman, the Romans were in charge and it appeared that basically capital punishment was their prerogative over any people that they were, you know, over. Of course, there were vigilante groups like Stephen, the first martyr, got, you know, killed by a Jewish vigilante kind of group, mob. Was, wasn't Herod in on it, though, the night Jesus died? I mean, that yes, but he couldn't, he couldn't say execute him. It had to be Pilate. Right. In but, fact, Herod just said this guy is a nut. Send him back to Pilate. Herod, oh, Herod maybe, okay, so that would explain, maybe explain why, because um, he feared that he could be raised, rise from the dead and come back to. Not that Herod himself wasn't pretty brutal and uh, killing people himself. But in terms of a legal kind of execution like this, that the Jewish Sanhedrin could say that he should be executed, but Pilate had to give the final say on that. I think as Nancy pointed out, Herod felt guilty about having beheaded John. He hadn't really wanted to do it. He got kind of boxed into doing that, which would explain why he, he might 
fear yes. that John had come back to haunt him. Yeah, that's why I was wondering why he wouldn't feel more haunted by being, having any responsibility at all in the case of Jesus. Maybe he felt as if he'd managed to avoid that. Yeah, he didn't, Herod did not condemn Jesus. He just said he was crazy. Okay. Anything else in this passage that, that we just read? All right, we'll go on and <clears throat> read about the death of John the Baptist. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it. And he solemnly swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, even half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? She replied, The head of John the baptizer. Immediately she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for the guests, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent a soldier of the guard with to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The word for king is basileos. And as I've said before, the word for kingdom is basileia. And most often it refers to the domain rather than the actual physical kingdom. But here, obviously, it does refer to the kingdom and perhaps those powers as well. Any thoughts on this passage? I had a question. Um, in the culture at this time, would this event have shocked people that this happened in this way? I don't think so. Howard was pretty brutal. You didn't have to do much to uh, make him upset. But again, he could only be king because the Roman emperor allowed him to be king under him, you know, like a vassal state. But the culture then was generally brutal, I think, by our standards. Yeah. Thanks. All right, now we're coming to an interesting story about the miracle of multiplication of the loaves. The apostles gathered around Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, Come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. 
and they went away in the boat to a deserted place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they hurried there on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. As he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now very late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy something for themselves to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. They said to him, Are we to go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves have you? Go and see. When they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he ordered them to get all the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And all ate and were filled. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. Those who had eaten the loaves numbered 5,000 men. I never had thought of it before, but when you read it this time, I see a parallel between this and my understanding of the Last Supper. Jesus called on his disciples here to feed the people, to provide them. They needed to do it themselves, but they were able to do it themselves through the power that he projected through them. And I think in the Last Supper, it was the same thing. He was telling them, you need to give your body and your blood for the church, just as I'm giving you the example tonight. There's very similar vocabulary used here in both at the Last Supper and here. Okay, why don't we go through and look at some of these words here. A deserted place. You know, often in the uh, New Testament Gospels, you'll see a little passage where they went off into a quiet place or deserted place, or Jesus himself went off to silently pray. If we think of our own tradition as Quakers, our silent waiting worship seems to be reminiscent of this kind of worship rather than going into a synagogue and, or the temple with loud vocal prayers, you know, readings of things. There's this different kind of worship in silence. That's a good point. Yes. Also, as you can see, a lot of the activity in the Gospels, especially here, are all along the shore of Galilee, uh, the Sea of Galilee, Cap Capernaum, was basically where Jesus was headquartered. That's where he seemed to have lived when he was in Galilee rather than in Nazareth. It mentions his going back to his home in Nazareth, but it appears that it was actually Capernaum that he's where he stayed most of the time. Okay, a denarius was a silver coin. That's the Greek form of it. You probably know it in the Latin form. And that basically was 
the usual salary for a day for a laborer, one denarius. And to say that you would need 200 denarii to feed these people, that's a lot of money. Think of that as 200 days worth of salary. And uh, still in that area of the Mideast, you have, uh, I know in, I think it's in Serbia, uh, dinar is the basic unit of money based on denarius. Going, goes back 2,000 years. So if you'd figure a $30,000 a year salary, that would be $20,000. So that would be $20,000 to feed 5,000 people. So that would be $4 a person. So, uh, Let me also say here, it's not 5,000 people. It says here in Greek, 5,000 men. And this word for men means only males. And it's not the uh, inclusive anthropos. This is yeah. the word aner. Because in the other, the other gospel, I forget which one it is, it says 5,000 men and women and children. Yeah. This is man, male. It also means husband. So what are you saying, that there were more people than 5,000? Yes, just saying here there are 5,000 males, and that's just counting the males, whereas they also mentioned there were women and children, not counting the women and children, and that's said actually in one of the other gospels. Yeah. And the word for man in the inclusive sense, man, human, is anthropos, like in anthropology. But the word used here is aner. The plural is andres. Okay. You have here five loaves and two fishes. If you go further into this gospel in chapter 8, you have a second mention of a, the multiplication of the loaves of bread. In chapter 8, verse 6. Yes. And it says there that there were seven loaves and a few small fish, and that seven baskets were left rather than the 12 baskets in chapter 6. For those of you who have heard me before, you just can't take things literally all the time, especially numbers. Like I've mentioned this many times, and I'm sure maybe most of you have heard me like what the number 40 means. Does 40 mean 40? Maybe. Not not usually. <laughs> it, it represents a major change before whatever occurred earlier compared to what occurs after. As with the flood, the world before, the 40 days of rain, and the world after. You know, Moses was on the mountain for 40 days. What was before? And then coming down with the Ten Commandments, what was after? Jesus was in the desert after his baptism for 40 days, what he was before and how he went out afterwards and preached the beginning of his three-year ministry, that was a major change. And again, the 40 days between the death and resurrection and, and ascension of Jesus, again, 40. There's a difference between Jesus as he was in his first appearance, his first coming, and after his death and resurrection. So 40 really has this powerful religious meaning as well as just meaning 40. And like I said, often it does not mean 40. This is true of other numbers as well. If you look at what we're reading right now, we have five loaves and two fish and 12 baskets. 12? Okay. What was the number of tribes of Israel? 12. And how many apostles were there? Twelve. Okay. Now looking at chapter 8, 
you got the seven baskets, seven loaves. How many on the Gentile shore of the Sea of Galilee, there were seven Gentile nations of Canaan, or I should say the seven Gentile nations. And also there were seven deacons, if you recall, in Acts. So seven has a sense there that we might miss because we don't, we're not thinking of that when we're reading about this. Seven baskets, you know, versus 12 baskets. Because in Matthew, again, you have both of these miracles in chapter 14. It takes place on the Palestinian side of the shore. And that's where you get the 12 baskets. But in chapter 15, it takes place on the Gentile shore. You have the seven Gentile nations of Canaan. So that it would have made sense to someone of that time to understand these numbers as signifying maybe not just an actual seven or 12 or whatever. There's a, a religious significance to them, something deeper there, but we wouldn't know that unless we know the, the history of these words. I don't know if that's clear or not. Yeah, that's very interesting. Again, maybe some of these other words have, numbers have meanings too. Like in the first miracle of multiplication, you have 5,000 men, males, but in the second one, you have 4,000 men. And the same thing in Matthew, you have 5,000 in the first and 4,000 in the second. But if you look at the single instances of the multiplication in Luke and John, they both have 5,000 men. Again, does that 5,000 signify something? It may, but I'm not sure exactly what. And rather than, you know, four compared to five. Some scholars think that actually there may only have been one miracle of the multiplication of the loaves that in Mark and Matthew, these came down as two different oral stories that then were thought to be separate multiplications. So they may not have been. But again, if you look at how these numbers differ as to where one is taking place on the Palestinian shore, and it's talking about the 12 tribes of Israel in terms of the back of the head, and the other one's on the Gentile side, uh, you've got the seven Gentile nations. There's something interesting there. So but it's just hard to know at this point in time. One other thing too that I think is very important, if you look at John chapter six, where you have John's rendition of the story, John chapter six, if you look at the very end of the story here, starting with verse 13, so they gathered them up, the fragments, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled 12 baskets. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And now verse 15, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They were seeing Jesus as a political, as a social Messiah to rescue them from the Roman oppression. But Jesus would have nothing of that. He was not that kind of person. There was a misunderstanding there. And that's often true in the gospel according to John. They're, they so often take things more literally or more physically or whatever. And it's right here. They wanted to make him king. But no, that's not the kind of Messiah that Jesus was. I hope I haven't confused everybody with all these variations on the uh, multiplication of the loaves. Oh, that's good. If you read it without any sort of explanation, then you assume that it's just mistranscribed. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, sometimes it is useful to, to know a little bit about the history or hoping that your translator was a good translator and could explain things where necessary. Just translating a word like 40, though, and leaving it at 40, I think you're going to miss something there. That somehow you need a commentary or just some insight from the Lord to think that maybe something more is being said here than just this taking the word 40 literally. But this is true of other numbers, 12, 7, 3 and a half, 1, 3, 10. They all have these other meanings. And even in English, when you think of the number 13, I think most people think of 13 as what kind of number? An unlucky number. And that's just something in our culture that we do that. But I'm saying numbers here, but this isn't only true of numbers. It's true of so many other things that are symbols, metaphors, allegorical expressions. Colors have uh, meanings, too, among the Jews. The Jews understood white. We think of white as purity. They thought of white as victory, as well as something pure. The color purple, immediately to someone in the first century of the Roman Empire, they would think of the emperor, they think of nobility, because those were the only people who were allowed to wear purple, because it was considered a royal color. So, you know, these colors have meanings as well. We'll get to see more of that, I think, as we read through this gospel. As friends have always said, we need to really look for the spiritual meaning behind things. Don't get so stuck on the surface level, on the literal level. You can have all kinds of fights over the literal meaning of something, but what matters is trying to seek that spiritual sense. Whoever was writing Mark and Matthew and, and using these different numbers, 7 verses 12 or whatever, they did so to convey a meaning there that their audience would have understood. And that was important to them to get across to their audience who are listening to this gospel being read to them in their house churches or wherever. Okay, we're almost finished here. Okay, I think this is a good place to, to end for today. Any further thoughts, any questions, any comments? So I take it, it's too obvious for you to have said this, that the loaves and the fishes are not literally loaves and fishes. Oh no, no, I don't mean that. Oh, there were actually loaves and I've read in some places that this is thought by some to be allegory. But you're saying I mean, that that's, that's something that's possible. It could be completely allegory. But I would not want to focus on whether it's some kind of spiritual allegory completely that. But as, again, don't fight over something like that. Assume in your head that there was something miraculous that happened. That's a big thing. They obviously saw it as a miracle. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't want to make him king if you didn't think this guy has got something totally extraordinary in him. I'm talking about in, in the Gospel according to John, where, you know, they just had this thing happen. Again, even in John, they, the word miracle isn't used. It's the word semeon, which is the word meaning sign. Because John, in the Gospel of John, he never uses the word miracle. He only uses the word sign. He doesn't want people to focus on the miracles Yes, the miracles are important, absolutely. But there's something greater there than just the, the miraculous kinds of 
powers that Jesus had. I would interpret the word sign in that case to mean sort of a confirmation, a divine confirmation of his power and ability, something that, tangible that we can see to confirm who he is. Uh, the Latin word for miracle is, um, I think it's miraculum. I'm forgetting, I'm not sure of the spelling here. And the, the first part of that word, the M-I-R-A, that's still in modern Spanish, mira, means look. Mm -hmm. something to look at. Look at, this is something that's pretty uh, amazing. So, okay, any further comments? Great, All right. thanks. Okay, I think that's good. We will start, we'll work again next week and continue from here. Neither activities nor possessions will ever be able to satisfy the spiritual longing radiating from our souls. This has been a podcast of Ohio Yearly Meeting of the Religious Society of Friends. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Chip Thomas. Our music was from Paulette Myers' CDs, which are Timeless Quaker Wisdom in Plainsong and Wellsprings of Life Quaker Wisdom in Chant. These CDs are available at paulantmeyer.com.